Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen. <laughs> the book of Genesis is the book of origins. In fact, the word Genesis in the Hebrew is the word Bereshith. And what it means, literally, is in the beginning. The Hebrew word Bereshith means in the beginning. So they were very creative in the way that they titled the book. They took the first word in the Hebrew language and they said, that's a good, good name for the book. And it actually is exactly what it is. And what the word means, literally, is origins. And so the book of Genesis is the book of origins. And so thus, as we turn to the book of Genesis, what we turn to is the answer of, question, or the, of the question of origins. Where did everything that is come from? And literally, the origin concerning everything in the universe finds its answer in the book of Genesis. The origin of the universe, the origin of order and complexity, of the solar system, of the earth, of the atmosphere and the hydrosphere, the origin of seasons, of life, the origin of man, the origin of marriage, the origin of good and evil, of sin and death, the origin of human government, of language, the origin of nations, the origin of custom and culture, of skills and trades, the origin of religion, the origin of Israel as a national entity, God's nation. The origin of sacrifice and atonement. The origin of the gospel and of redemption. Even the origin of end times events as we know them to be so far out. All of these things have their place, their foundation, their roots in the book of Genesis. And as we travel through it, we will see the origin of all these things. But not just the origin of the physical universe and its physical systems or the cultural systems or anthropomorphic, but really even the origin of the spiritual things, the origin of every doctrine of the Bible that we study, the origin of all truth finds its root in the book of Genesis, the origin of God and his sovereignty, his sovereign election, the origin of God's salvation, the origin of justification by grace through faith the origin of the security of the believer, of separation and sanctification, the origin of providence and the existence of a spiritual realm, the origin of what we know of, the character and the nature of God, all of these things are not given to us later on in the Revelation, but the foundation of them is laid even in the very book of Genesis at the very beginning. And what the book of Genesis provides for us in a spiritual uh, sort of substance is that it gives us a foundation upon which all truth stands. And if you were to take the book of Genesis out of the Bible, you wouldn't change the message. The message would still be the message, and it wouldn't change who God is. None of that would be different. But what it would do is it would remove the foundation upon which the truth stands, and the truth would become abstract. And it would be very much like looking at a tree and its branches, and you see its leaves, and you see its fruit, and you see the detail of all that comes out, but as you trace your eyes back down the tree, back to the beginning of the branches, and then you come to the trunk, and you move to the trunk, and, and if you were to do that, and then all of a sudden, at a certain point, the trunk just began to phase into a hologram. 
And you were never able to bring everything that you saw in the branches and the leaves on top to their proper landing place. Then the tree would fail to make sense. You would see it. You would observe it. It would still be, but you wouldn't know what it was. It wouldn't be complete in in your understanding of the thing. And thus the Bible, the truth of God, void of the book of Genesis would be very much like that. The truth would still be the truth, but we would have nothing to attach it to origins would simply be answered by the best theory that we could come up with in observing the branches of the tree. And it could never do justice to it. You could never describe a root system of a tree just based by looking at its branches. You'd never come to the proper conclusion. And so things would make no sense. Man would make no sense. What are we? Where did we come from? That answer would never be known. It would never be uh, understood in the proper way. We'd have to interpret the answer to that based upon our environment. And then the conclusion that we'd come to is, well, the, the thing that we're most closely related to is the animal kingdom. And so thus man is just simply an animal. And that's all we are. And that would be the conclusion that we would come to. All of the systems and institutions of man would make no sense. Marriage would make no sense. We would say, well, why do we get married? Where did that come from? It's just some custom, you know, that someone invented somewhere along the line. But what is it? Why do we do this? It doesn't make any sense. Family would make no sense. What is a family? Why should we have families? Why should we think family to be anything uh, sanctified or anything holy in it? Morality would have no landing place. What is morality? It just becomes abstract. Why should we be moral? Law and order would make no sense. Death would make no sense. We'd have no answer as to why we die. Why do we live these complex and complicated lives and and we experience all these things and we learn all of these things and we grow and become all of these things and then we're just gone. Poof, it's over. And yet we're so intelligent and so far beyond any other of the species that are there, but it would make no sense to us if we didn't have the book of Genesis. It's amazing to me to consider that even Jesus, when he was confronted by the Pharisees, And he was asked a question, and they were seeking to trap him, but they talked to him about uh, marriage and divorce. Again, they came to him, and they said to Jesus, and they said, well, Moses gave us a command in the law, and he said that we could divorce our wives. And so they came to Jesus, and they said, is it right then for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And what they did is that they took this concept of marriage and divorce And they didn't bring it to its roots or or develop it from its roots. They just kind of looked at it as it was in, in, in the moment. And they said, well, you know, we should just be able to get in and out of this as we please. And Moses gave us the permission to do that. What do you say? And what Jesus did in answering that question and in bringing that uh, answer to its logical conclusion is that he opened up the framework of the discussion and he brought it back to its root. And he said, you're quoting Moses. But have you not read that at the beginning, he which made them male and female said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, singular, and they too shall be one flesh. And that was the end of the argument. Because what Jesus did is he took the the, the little micro fact that they were trying to twist and bend according to what they wanted, and he stretched it into the framework of the total truth of God, and he said this was God's intent when he made it from the beginning. And when he brought it to the beginning, it ended all argument, and it brought clarity and light to what marriage is and what it was intended to be by God. 
And thus, without the book of Genesis, you have no foundation for any of that truth. And so truth might exist without Genesis, but it has no roots, no DNA, and no order. It becomes unknowable. It becomes abstract. It becomes somewhat of a hologram. Now, the importance of Genesis as a precursor to knowing God and knowing truth, we recognize that the book of Genesis is quoted or referenced over 165 times in the New Testament. If you count repeats where the same verse is repeated, it's over 200 times throughout the New Testament that Genesis is referred to in some way to establish the fact of truth. Every single New Testament writer in some way refers to the book of Genesis and specifically Genesis chapters 1 through 11, which, de which deals specifically with origins as it con uh, concerns the universe. Jesus himself, in his teaching, in his earthly ministry, gave specific references to, to something in each of the first seven chapters of the book of Genesis, except for chapter 5, which is just a genealogy, and you could bend that if you wanted and say that he did, um, because he used some of those names, you know, in the whole thing. But Jesus, Jesus gave credence to the things that are recorded in Genesis chapters 1 through 7 and, and then in other places throughout Genesis 2, illustrating its importance. But it's also important to recognize that whenever the book of Genesis is quoted by the New Testament writers or even throughout the Old Testament, it is never quoted as myths or allegories or fables, but it is always taken and used as a literal historical account. And it's important that we understand that Genesis is intended by God to be fact in the mind of the believer. And if it's not, then the whole Bible begins to wobble in the whole thing. And what we come to is a conclusion when we consider the importance of the book of Genesis is that if someone could remove it somehow, or if someone could discredit the book of Genesis or corrupt it or change it in some way, then what they would be effectively doing in the process of that is that they would be bringing or calling into question everything else that God has said. The entire truth and revelation of God would begin to wobble if one could do that. And thus, we begin to understand why the book of Genesis is so often criticized and attacked maligned and questioned by those that are skeptical to the existence of God and to the things of the Christian faith, because Genesis is so important as a foundation for all of God's truth. Now, amazingly, the book of Genesis in and of itself, when God first gave us the things that are recorded here before us, God anticipated and answered or gave answered to every major false religious system that man would come up with throughout his entire existence. Man would believe in atheism, that there is no God. And that is a belief. It's a faith to believe that there is no God. But God answered that in the book of Genesis by declaring to us that it was God who created the heavens and the earth. Man would believe in pantheism, the belief that all things are God, that I'm God, you're God, the chair that you're sitting in is God. Everything is a part of God. And it would be a belief that man would ascribe to. But Genesis answers pantheism by saying, no, God is separate, that God transcends his creation and that he's separate from his creation and that he is holy, which means that he's exalted above it. He is not it. He's over it. He made it. 
Man would believe in polytheism, that there would be many gods and that different gods would be responsible for different things. But Genesis answers that by saying that there is one God and that God is one and that he gives his glory to no other. Man would believe throughout the realms of his existence in materialism that things are God, that material possessions are God. But that Genesis answers materialism by telling us that it is God who created all things and therefore he's exalted above the material world. Man would believe in humanism. Humanism declares that man is his own God. But the Bible tells us in Genesis that it was God who created man, not man who creates God, even though there's so many men that seek to create God in their image. Man would believe in uniformitism, that all is just simply the byproduct of nature, that something was set into motion and now nature just carries things through and things just evolve and continue to roll out and that nature essentially is God. But the Bible teaches us in the book of Genesis that that is not true, that God didn't just set things in motion and then take a back seat and let nature do it, but that God is involved in his creation, even in the finite details, in carrying things through and in sustaining all things. And man would believe in syncretism, which is simply taking a whole salad bar of everything that people believe and picking and choosing what they like and making their own tailor-made religion that fits their style or their culture or their background. But Genesis answers man's uh, tendency to do this by telling us that God is absolute that God is knowable and that God is immutable, meaning that he is who he is and he does not change. And God anticipated all of those things, even in the very beginning and in the origin account of Genesis. He gives to us the foundation and the declaration that none of that is true, that God is God, that he's the one who created the heavens and the earth, that all is the byproduct of him, that he's sovereign over all, that he's separate from all, and that he is gloriously uh, um, over all of those things. The book of Genesis, as we look at it from a very practical standpoint, divides itself into two segments. They're not equal in size, but they are absolutely equal in substance. The first segment of the book of Genesis deals with the origin of the world and the origin of nations. And it's found just in the first 11 chapters. So Genesis 1 through 11 deal with the origin of the world, the universe, the physical things that we understand, and of the nations that make the world what it is. Then the second half of the book of Genesis is from chapter 12 all the way through the end, which is chapter 50, and it deals with the origin of the nation of Israel. God's intent was, first of all, to make a world which would be the home for man. But then he knew that man would fall, all things that we'll study in the coming weeks and months as we move through this book. But that in God's plan that he would bring forth a redemption and a salvation, a solution for man's fall, and he would do that through a nation, the nation of Israel. And so Genesis 12 through 50 described for us the origin of that nation and it revolves around four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Four in succession that would uh, then, you know, become the, the nation that God would use to bring his son Jesus into the world. The book of Genesis is authored by Moses. And we know that because in the New Testament, Jesus, when he quoted from Genesis, ascribed authorship 
to Moses. He said, have you not read in Moses? And then he would quote things that are found in the book of Genesis. And so Moses was the one that recorded the things that we have before us here in the book of Genesis. You say, well, there's a problem with that. And that is that Moses wasn't alive during the time that Genesis was written. Now, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those other books, Moses was alive for every portion of those things, except, of course, the last chapter of Deuteronomy when Moses is dead. He didn't write that part, you know, but he wrote everything else. So how did Moses write Genesis even though he wasn't present for the things that are there? How can we know that it's trustworthy? It'd probably be more accurate than to say that Moses wrote it, to say that he was the editor, or he was the one who gathered the accounts and put them together for us in the form that we now have them. As we read through the book of Genesis, there's 11 or 12 times that we come across the phrase that these are the generations of. In chapter 2, verse 4, it says, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man. Then in 6, 9, these are the generations of Noah. Then in 10, 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Then in eleven ten, it says, These are the generations of Shem, one of Noah's sons. And then eleven twenty seven, these are the generations of Terah, who was the father of Abraham. Then, and it goes on. I, I don't need to give you every one of these things. You're not going to remember any of that anyways. You know? But the idea here is that what, the, what it means, the word generations, when it says these are the generations, it means that this is the record of what happened after the origin of. So these are, this is the generation of the heavens and the earth. This is the record of what happened after the origin of. And, and so basically what Moses most likely did is that he had these things that were recorded of what took place after it. And then under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he put these things together for us in the fashion that we now have them. And so uh, a collection of these records that describe for us the origins, not only of the heavens and the earth, but then also of the nation of Israel, which would become the platform and foundation for our salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, before we begin to just talk about verse 1 tonight, I want to give you a few helpful hints Uh, to keep in your mind as we study the book of Genesis. There are um, a couple of, I guess what we would call, laws of study. The, the, The fancy word for it is hermeneutics, but that's, you know, for those of you that care about those language type things, you know. But hermeneutics essentially is uh, the, the way to properly interpret the Bible. And we want to properly interpret the Bible. You know, I don't want you to just believe what I say, and I don't want you to just come up with things on your own. Well, I think this is what this means. You know, we want to interpret it correctly. And so there's a couple of, 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 of kind of laws of interpretation that if you know them, it will help you as we go through the book of Genesis. One of them is the law of first mention. And the law of first mention essentially means that the first time a subject, a theme, a word is mentioned in the Bible, that that sets the the tone, that, that that describes or defines what that word, concept, or subject will mean throughout the entirety of the rest of the Bible. And so with God, definitions don't change. 
He doesn't, when he says something, mean it to be one thing in one part of the Bible and then mean it to be something completely different in another part of the Bible. God is incredibly consistent in the way that he does things. And so um, the, the law of first mention gives to us that kind of a context. And it's just a part of uh, it. So in, so in other words, like the first time that God mentions marriage in the Bible, which he's going to do in chapter 2, is he puts Adam and Eve together for the first time. And he defines what marriage is. Well, that's God's definition of marriage throughout the rest of human history. It doesn't change. The first mention of it sets the tone for what it means throughout. And so it's just a part of God's nature that he is the same in the way that he does things, and that helps us to understand him and helps us to have clarity uh, in our confusion. The second one, and, and the only other one that I think is, is of uh, note or worth mentioning tonight, is called the law of expositional constancy. And, and what that you know, essentially means is that once the meaning of something or the symbolism of something is established in a certain way, or it's interpreted a certain way, then it doesn't change when the same thing is used in another place. And I'll give you a for instance so you know what I'm talking about. When we come to uh, the, the testimony of Joseph's life, there's going to be a scene where Joseph is in the prison. And someone in the prison is going to have a dream. In fact, two guys are going to dream dreams in one night. And Joseph is going to interpret those dreams. And, and in one of the dreams, there's some birds that are going to pluck food out of a basket that's on the head or in the hat of one of these two men. And Joseph is going to tell this man, and he's going to say, hey, listen, those birds are not a good thing for you. They're a sign that Pharaoh's going to cut your head off in three days. So enjoy the last couple of moments of your life because you're just about finished. We say, well, how did Joseph know that? Well, there was a time in the life of his grandfather, Abraham, when Abraham was waiting on God for a promise to be fulfilled. And as Abraham was waiting, God told Abraham to divide a sacrifice and then wait for God to show up. And while Abraham was waiting in the presence of this dead animal, it says that the birds of the air were coming down and seeking to steal the meat and that Abraham drove them away. And thus it becomes established that birds in the Bible are a symbol of demonic things, of evil, seed stealers, something that would seek to take something away. We see it in Abraham. The interpretation is the same in Joseph. And then when Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 gives the parable of the soils, remember, some seed fell by the wayside. And what happened? The fowls, the birds of the air, they came and they stole the seed away. It's expositionally constant. It always means the same thing. When we come to the book of Revelation, chapter 18, verse 2, it talks about the fall of Babylon the Great, that final city of evil in the end times. And it says that Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and it has become the habitation of demons, the hold of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. And thus, from Genesis to Revelation, there is expositional constancy in the way God means something to mean something. And that's just helpful for us to know as we study the book of Genesis, because there's so many things that are mentioned here 
that keep coming up throughout the Bible, and Genesis sets the tone for what those things mean. And so those are just helpful things for you as we study the book of Genesis, because they'll help you in your Bible study and in your understanding of the rest of the scripture. Well, let's get into the text. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It tells us, in the beginning, God. Now, the word beginning that is employed there is the word that refers to time. And so the very first thing that we have before us in the Bible is the beginning of time as we know it. Now, this is not, when it says in the beginning, the beginning of God. God was eternally existent prior to the creation of of time and the setting forth of the universe into its motion. In fact, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is not the most historical verse in the Bible. John chapter 1 verse 1 actually reaches back further than Genesis 1:1. John chapter 1 verse 1 says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was with God in the beginning. And then he talks a little bit later in John, and he says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That the Word who was God is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. So before God even spoke time or space or matter into existence, he was eternally existent in the person of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as we shall see. And so time is not the beginning of all things. It's just simply the beginning of our universe and our existence as we know it. But it's not the beginning of God. God is eternal. Now, it's almost impossible for you and I to think about or to consider an existence apart from time. Because time is basically the platform upon which everything that we do and live in exists. I mean, think about a world without time. That would be great in the summer, wouldn't it? (laughs) But we we have a hard time doing that. But where God is, there is no time. He's outside of time. Time is determined by the laws of the universe. We measure time by rotations and revolutions of things that are in our solar system or in our universe. But God is outside of our universe. He created it as a separate entity. Therefore, where he is, there is no time. He is completely separate and outside of it. Now, there's a world of meditation and truth that you can think through, and I won't give you anything now because you won't hear another word for the rest of the study. You'll just be in a loop of trying to figure out what it means to be outside of time. But the very first thing that Genesis tells us is in the beginning. Beginning is a word that denotes the beginning of time, time as we know it. Time is a creation of God, not of man. And the universe is wound up like a clock, And one day there will be time no more. Revelation chapter 10, verses 5 and 6 tell us when time will come to its end. And time will one day come to an end. But its beginning is here. Genesis 1, verse 1. It tells us in the beginning what was there. God. This is the first mention of God in the Bible. You say, thank you, Captain Obvious. (laughs) How long did it take you to figure that out? It amazes me that the Bible never sets forth to prove the existence of God. The Bible assumes the reality of a God because God is God. God doesn't feel it necessary to prove himself existent. The Bible tells us that God put it in man when God made man to know that there's a God. 
There's something intuitively built into the fabric of our being that tells us that there is a God. And we have to do everything that we can to silence and suppress that reality in order to come to the conclusion that there wouldn't be. It is apparently obvious in the very existence of our lives that there is a God. So God doesn't seek it necessary or find it necessary to prove his existence. But he does, God, put it, who put it in us to know him, he absolutely does reveal who he is in the pages of scripture. Not that he exists, but he wants us to know who he is. That's the whole purpose for everything that he's done. And so at this point, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we know almost nothing about God, but we know that he is. It's interesting that the word that's used for God in the Hebrew when it says in the beginning God is the word Elohim. And the thing that's amazing about Elohim is that when you say Elohim, you're using it in the plural. Elohim is God in the plural. Now, it's not God's, it's God, but it's used the way you would use it in a sentence of plurality. If you were to want to just say God in the singular, you would say El, E-L. If you wanted to say two or more, you would say Elah, E-L-A-H. But if you wanted to say three, you would say Elohim. You would make it plural in that way. And what we see in the very first verse of Genesis is that when God announces himself to the world, he announces himself as one who is three or more. And that is the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And thus, as we see God throughout even the book of Genesis, he's going to refer to himself, though he is singular, in the plural. He will say, let us make man in our image. Who is he talking to? He's not talking to other gods because God is one. He's not talking to angels because we learn later on that angels are not made in the image of God. So who is God talking to? He's communing within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we see God describing himself as Elohim, though he is one. It says that in the beginning, God, and what did he do? It says that God created the heavens and the earth. And what we have right here is the answer to the most important question that every single human being that comes into this world has. And that question is, where did I come from? And the answer to that question is given right here. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what God does right here is that he leaves the ball in our court to believe whether or not this is true or whether or not this is false. He lays out the fact and then he leaves it to you and I to determine whether or not we want to believe simply what he has said or whether or not we want to reject it. And it doesn't matter what anyone says, no matter how smart or how educated or how philosophical or how deep they are, it doesn't matter what anyone says, what someone believes about whether or not God created the heavens and the earth or whether it came about some other way, it is absolutely a matter of faith. We either believe what God said here or we will believe something else. But everyone who has any opinion about origins has that opinion by faith. Why? Because no one was there. Were any of you there at the very beginning when it happened? Do you know someone who was there? Was there anyone who was there? Because as I read it, there was no one. And so no matter what a person wants to believe about origins, it comes down to a matter of faith. It's something that they believe 
whether it's what God said here that he created it or whether it came from another source. Now, everyone, again, no matter what their education level, how deep they are, philosophical, or what they believe, everyone has an equal playing field of evidence that they can examine in order to come to a conclusion about what they believe. The Christian and the non-Christian, the theist and the atheist, can all look at the same platform of evidence in order to come to their conclusion. And what evidence is that? It's the evidence that's bound up in the creation itself. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, the Apostle Paul says this, and it's a brilliant analysis on this concept. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, of men, and here's why, who hold or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, ungodly, unrighteous men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want to know the truth, and the reason they don't want to know the truth is because of their unrighteous deeds. And here's why they're condemned, verse 19. He says, because that which may be known of God or about God is manifested in them, for God has showed it to them. How? For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." In other words, every single one of us interacts every day with and in the creation of God, and therefore we're without excuse in terms of the conclusion that we come to concerning his existence. Why? Because the evidence of his creative act and existence and even his very nature is present in the creation that God made himself. And so everyone has equal access to the evidence concerning the conclusion that they'll come to, but not everyone comes to the same conclusion. Well, you say, well, what is the evidence that proves Genesis 1-1 is true, that God created the heavens and the earth. Well, the very first thing, the most obvious and glorious thing that proves Genesis 1-1 to be true is the word created itself. In the Hebrew, it's the word bara. And you say, okay, big deal. Here's the big deal. There are three words in the Hebrew language that can all be translated create. create. Bara, aksa, and yatsar. And the difference between bara and asa and yatsar is that bara means to create something from nothing. Meaning that you had no raw materials or anything to create with and you created from nothing. That's bara. Asa and yatsar are both to assemble existing materials to be made into something else. And when God says that he created the heavens and the earth, he said that he did it from nothing. For God who spoke light into existence with his very word has also shined in our hearts, it says in 2 Corinthians. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, it says that by faith we understand, and it's by faith, and it's by faith we understand that through the word of God, the heavens and the earth were created so that the things that are created were not created formed from things which do appear. That's bara. Which means that something had to set forth physical matter into existence, and God says that he did it with his word. He did it. 
Faith answers that question, and it's a question that even science to this day can't answer. See, the scientist or the atheist who you ask and say, well, where did creation come from? They boil it down to the base thing. There has to be something that started it all. And so they say there was a big bang. But the question is, well, where did the substance that banged came from? And even to this day, the scientist is unable to answer that question. Maybe you saw this article. This was this week. I think it was Monday of this week. So we're talking two days ago, uh, this article was published, and the name of the article is The World's Fastest Swirling Vortex Simulates the Big Bang. Okay, they're still searching. Faster than a tornado, speedier than the giant storm swirling on Jupiter. It's the, fa- the world's fastest swirling vortex, which scientists have created in a primordial soup of gooey particles meant to recreate the Big Bang. The swirling particle soup rotates at head-snapping speeds many times faster than the closest contenders. However, (laughs) don't expect this fast-spinning fluid to turn heads anytime soon, as the vortices occur in a material called a quark-gluon plasma that is so small that the signature of this whirling can be detected only by the particles it produces. We can't look at quark-gluon plasma. It's on the scale of an atomic nucleus, said Michael Lisa, a physicist at the Ohio State University who works on the relativistic heavy-ion collider collaboration, which produced the new results. Now, here's their explanation. Right after the Big Bang, a hot primordial stew of elementary particles called quarks and gluons permeated the baby universe. These elementary particles are the known building blocks of better-known particles, such as protons and neutrons. The quark-gluon plasma has several unique properties. First, at a blazing 7 trillion to 10 trillion degrees Fahrenheit... It's the hottest fluid known, it's the densest fluid and nearly perfect in that it experiences almost no friction, meaning it flows very easily. To understand exactly what happened in those moments after the Big Bang, scientists have recreated this primordial particle soup in an atom smasher at the RHIC, which smashes the nuclei of gold atoms together at nearly the speed of light, then uses ultra-sensitive detectors to measure the particles that fly off the conclusion. In the new study, the team analyzed the quark-gluon plasma's vorticity, which means it's spinnings, vorticity. Essentially, a measure of its angular momentum, or in colloquial terms, how fast it spins. Of course, they had a unique obstacle. The RHIC can produce just a teensy amount of the material, and it lives very fleetingly, about 10 to the minus 23 seconds. So there is no way to actually observe this fluid in the traditional sense. Now, it goes on to describe it, but I want to bring you to their conclusion concerning uh, what they say in this whole thing. They say, understanding the structure of fluid flow in the plasma could reveal insight into the strong nuclear force which binds atoms together, the researchers said. Several competing particle theories make predictions about vorticity that could eventually be compared against these experimental results. However, scientists still know too little about the plasma's swirling properties to make definitive conclusions. 
It's too, this is a quote now. It's too early to say whether it teaches us something fundamental. Did you hear that? You just, I just wasted like three minutes of your time to come to the end of the article, which says it's too early to say whether it teaches us something fundamental, Lisa said. Now, here's the amazing thing. When I read this article, I had to know how much this thing cost. <laughs> so I poked around, you know how much it costs? To date? Actually, no, not to date. As of 2005, $1.1 billion went into this RHIC, and in 2015, they were approved for $1 billion more of government funding to expand this machine and their research towards it. Now, if you've done anything in discern, those of you end times people, you know what's going on over in Switzerland and France and the particle collider there and the amount of time and money that goes into research like this. Why? Because I don't want to believe Genesis 1-1. Let me save you $1.1 billion. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, let's stop there tonight. I'm not going to ever get through it. <laughs> and I'm going to frustrate myself and all of you in the process. That's a good place to pause. And we'll pick it up next week. And we'll uh, continue talking about the evidence. That's where we'll pick up next week, talking about the evidence that God created the heavens and the earth. And we'll continue uh, and we'll move on from there. The musicians can come. Here's the remarkable thing. If God can set the universe in motion with nothing more than his word, and with all of its complexity and all of its wonder and all of its finite little detail, which is infinitely large and also infinitely small, it's infinite in both directions, and if he can manage all of that and keep it going in perfect stability and never miss a single beat, and none of that ever changes, and he is perfectly consistent in all that he is, then the question becomes, what can't he do in our lives? When it comes to the things that we need and have need of, Lord, this marriage and this relationship, I have no idea how it could ever be repaired. Lord, the physical condition that I find myself in here tonight and the failing of my health or the falling apart of my body. It is nothing with God to rearrange a few cells. He can do all things. And the question doesn't rest with God's ability or even with God's willingness. The question rests in one thing and one thing alone. Is am I in a right relationship with the God who made me here tonight? Because God has divorced himself from working effectively in the lives of those people that have refused to put their faith and trust in him. But he has said that to as many as received him, and it all comes down to a matter of faith, to them he gave the right to be called the sons and the daughters of the living God. And to the person who belongs to him, that person has the right to come to him as a son or a daughter and then to ask. And God says that in the asking, there will be receiving. So the question tonight is not whether or not God exists, not whether or not God is true. Does Genesis 1-1 hold water? 
The question is, do I believe what God said? And am I in a right relationship with him? The Bible says that my sins have separated me from God. But that it was God's plan from the beginning to send forth his son into the world who would take away my sins. And in the receiving of his gift of salvation, my soul, my life is redeemed and brought back into fellowship and relationship with God. Have you been there? Have you done that? That's what God's waiting for. When that relationship is set right, then all of the power and grace, everything that God has is set right in that life. God said, let there be light, and there was light. In your life, God wants to say, let there be light, and there will be light. God wants to say, as he said, let the dry land appear. In your life, he wants to say, let stability appear. He can do all things. Have you asked him? Father, we thank you tonight for the power that's displayed. We thank you for the evidence that's in the creation that we interact with every day that declares to us your eternal power and Godhead. We thank you tonight most of all for who you are. That what this creation reveals is not a God who is a warlord or who is a tyrant or who desires to take. But you are a benevolent, sacrificial, loving God. And we thank you tonight for who you are. And so, Lord, take the things that we've heard, stir up in us our faith, lay again the foundation of truth, and may our eyes be fixed and set completely and only upon you. And we ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.